0: All right, so our text this morning is Second Samuel uh, chapter eight. Uh, please open, find that in your Bible or the copy in front of you, that Pew Bible. It's on page 260. To remind you, after much, much waiting, over the course of uh, many, many years, decades, uh, David is now finally king over all of Israel, the United tribes over all Israel. The people of God rejoice, because that means two things. Uh, It means there is war and there is worship. Uh, There is is war that will bring stability. There's there's the conquering of various enemies, as we will read, that brings about unity and rest and peace because of that conflict. And then, as David is removing these various threats, but it also means that there is worship, that there is a a gathering uh, around the Mount of, of Mount Zion where the tabernacle is, and God has appointed uh, worship, and His presence is there, and David has restored this. It's a beautiful thing. You, you know, when we read Old Testament narrative, I, I have this experience, and I, I really enjoy, as you, you probably have picked up on, uh, the Old Testament. And uh, I, I keep saying to myself, what would it have been like to be there? Uh, what would it have been like to, to be there? As you locate yourself, you know, God did not... Create a, a video record. It's not as if God revealed himself in the form of uh, recordings. He chose to reveal himself in a book, in a holy sacred text that we would know him that way. So we, we are not watching something. We, and that doesn't stifle us. You know how it is when you read something, uh, your imagination has more liberty and you can press into that and imagine things. And imagine, even as a family, we've been reading through portions of Genesis. And, you know, you just go and you say, imagine what it was like for, for Noah to see God sustain life uh, and to, to make good on his promise. What was it like for Abraham after his wife being barren so long? What was it like when he held a new baby in his arms? Right? You say, what was it like for, for Jacob, who was wrestling with an angel of the Lord, to say, I want your blessing.'" And then he walks away with a limp. What, what is it like when uh, Moses hears the voice of God speaking from a burning bush? What would it have been like to be there to encounter this, to, to imagine what they are thinking? What was it like when, when Joseph said, convinced by faith in the face of his brothers who had betrayed him and sold him into slavery, and he said to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, and I forgive you. That is one of my favorite scenes in Genesis 50, when there's, you know there was weeping and weeping and weeping, rejoicing these brothers reconciled. What was it like? What was it like for King David when he now is there in the tabernacle? God has humbled him. God has provided. God has promised him. Back in chapter 7, last week we, were, we rehearsed this. He has promised David to participate in an eternal covenant that will bless the nation of Israel, that will bless the nations of the earth, that there will come from him the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, from the city of David, a king, a messiah, an anointed one, who is even greater than David could ever imagine. And David did two things. We talked about this in the last chapter. David sat and David stood David sat. He was sitting in the presence of God, standing in awe of the character of God. Remember what he said last week in chapter 7. Lord, who am I? Truly humble. Who am I? And what is my house that you have brought us thus far safe?" And then he says, you are great. He is a humble, uh, worship, standing in awe of God, he is in worship. But he's, he's also standing, sitting in the presence of God. But last week we said he's also standing. He's standing on the promises of God in prayer. He knows that God has promised things to him. Grant me, Lord, victory, he said last week. "You Do what you said you would do. Like, make good on the promises, God. And we rehearsed some of that last week. We noted when I used this great uh, 17th century uh, quote from William Gurnall when he says, Prayer is nothing but the promise reversed or God's word formed into an argument and retorted by faith upon God again. Remember, we talked about that at the close as an application that we would we would go to the Lord and say, this is what you have promised. God, this is why I'm boldly petitioning you for this or for that. I challenged you last week, you have to know the promises of God to appeal to them, to stand upon them, to find assurance Then you have to be aware and informed of the promises of God. But if you were keen, you know that the, the promises that David has at different times are more particular and when we go to the Heavenly Father, we say, you know, Lord, here I am, and I'm struggling in a valley, and I, I'm, I'm encountering my weaknesses, but I'm, I'm, I'm crying out for mercy because you promised that your power is made perfect in weakness, and I should boast there. You, you know, he, he didn't say how he would provide that strength. He didn't say at what time he would. We might go to the Lord and say, based off those promises, you said, God, that you would never leave me nor forsake me, but I'm lonely right now and I'm struggling. He doesn't say, oh, well, I'm going to now promise you that at this particular day, under these particular circumstances, through that particular avenue, is exactly how I'm going to provide for your loneliness to be done. He just says he will. He doesn't say precisely How? So if you were keen to that, you would say, oh, well, that doesn't guarantee anything for us, but yet it does in the greater picture. The narrator here would have us see the promises that are particular to David. And back in chapter 7... Just a little more review. Thanks for bearing with me. But he says this in chapter 7. It's revealed to him that he would make a a covenant. And it says in verse 9 And I have been with you wherever you've gone, David, and have cut off your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them. And hear why. This is why in verse 10 so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly, and he goes on to say that I will give you rest. I will give you rest from your enemies. But of course, for that rest to happen, like I said, needs to be conflict. There has to be conflict uh, and conquest. And these three chapters that are next, in uh, as the narrator has recorded, uh, inspired of God, chapters eight, nine, and ten. Uh, it's not actually chronological. It's actually more. Uh, Gathered thematically and so that's how we're going to take it and the two the two themes are contrasted there's a theme of of david's victories that take place and that's primarily in chapter 8 and chapter 10 so i'm going to hold off next week chapter 9 where we see david showing compassion and mercy and care for someone who has a disability but right now he's taken out some enemies so we're looking at chapters 8 and chapters 10 let me invite you to stand in deference sorry to god's word I'm not going to read all of this, but I am going to read quite a bit, so please do bear with me. Hear this. This is the word of God. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Methag Ammah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making, a line uh, like, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute David was also defeated Hadad-Ezer, uh, the son of Rehoboam, uh, Rehob, the king of Zobah, and he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. Verse 4, David took with him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought, and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And, and from Beth, Betha and the Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Ezar, Toi sent his son Joram to king David to ask of his health and to bless him, because he had fought against Hadad-Ezar and defeated him, for Hadad-Ezar had been at war with Toi, and Joram brought about with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the sil- silver and gold he dedicated to all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezar, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom, throughout all of Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. It goes on to say that David set up a cabinet with these various leaders. And then there is this account where he is showing kindness and mercy to the Mephibosheth, which we'll talk about next week. So look down a little further to chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died. Hanun, his son, uh, reigned in his place, and David said, Oh, I've dealt loyally with Hanun. Uh, with Hanan, the son of Nahash, and his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, but the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half their beard of each of them, and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, and sent them away. When it was told, David, he sent to meet them, for their men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of beth and Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah, and the 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, and 12,000 men. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up a battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and of the Rohab and the men of Tob and Mach, were by themselves in the open country when Joab saw the battle was set against him both in front and in rear he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians the rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai his brother and he arrayed them against the Ammonites and he said if the Syrians are too strong for me then you shall help me but the Ammonites are too strong for you then I will come and help you Be of good courage, verse 12. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Now the rest records that the Syrians uh, surrendered because they had no other choice, and David uh, was victorious there as well. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. Would you be seated? Father, I, I said it earlier. You told us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, your word. Would you please bless us in our hearing and our believing? and our understanding, our applying of this. Lord, would you please send your spirit so that we wouldn't be attentive to how this might be really good for other people to hear, but how it's good for, for me, for us. Make that true for me, Lord, your servant. That's all I am. Thank you for Jesus. We pray on account of him. Amen. Some people get credit for being good. This is going to sound jaded, okay? This is going to sound a little cynical. Uh, People sometimes get credit for being good when in reality it's just that they didn't have the power to act on the evil that was uh, in their heart or in their thinking. I think you understand what I mean, but let me give you a little bit more uh, of what I mean. They don't have the power to act on what they intend to do. I heard a quote recently. It says, power is a test of our character. Let me say it again. Power is a test of our character. Now, that could be true of someone who is in executive leadership. It could also be true of a college freshman who has the personal liberties of living outside the home at age 18. Power is a test of our character. When we can do whatever we want, what we choose, think about this, Whatever we choose in that moment when we can do whatever we want, it reveals something to others. It reveals something to ourselves about who we are, who we really are. This is not a lesson in David's greatness. It's a a lesson. It's a study. It's a consideration of the greatness of God working in the heart of his king. For many years, David has had very little power. Imagine, right? At, at a very early age, he was the, he was the, the younger brother. He was the, you know, the, the grunt. He, when, when Samuel, remember, at the beginning of all this, when Samuel came to go and anoint the king, they didn't even bring David out. He was out in the field being a, a, a shepherd boy. And he's this little poet, musician, shepherd. This isn't the king, and there he is. But it's the Spirit of God that comes upon David anointed that he is he waits for quite some time sure later on he develops power because he is put in a place of authority as a commander in saul the king's army Uh, but he's subservient to saul and then he becomes a fugitive having to run from saul who is envious and jealous his power and his authority is taken away from him even david's own wife is taken from him now years later we know this king saul is dead That's where we turned into 2 Samuel. David has now become king over all of Israel. As one Bible commentator put it, in our text, David will subdue his enemies and bring about peace. He now has the authority to do whatever he desires. This is the time we shall see David at his best. And unfortunately, in chapter 11, at his worst. Well, that'll be for next fall. But it's God's Power That's being employed here to accomplish God's will. Three questions to help us kind of work through this. They're listed there in the order. Uh, The first is, why are they pursuing these neighboring enemies? The second is, how is it they are winning? And then last thing, uh, who are they trusting? Why are they pursuing? They're pursuing in battle these neighboring city-states. We know the Bible records uh, these great superpowers like Babylon and Egypt, but that's not the case. These are uh, city-states, uh, these regional uh, you know, nearby um, bordering enemies. And I won't get into the finer details of the precise geography and the history that is here. Maybe that will be your homework and you can get out a, a pretty simple study Bible and it will give you some more orientation and reference. So I'm doing that uh, for your sake. I won't dig into it now. But in summary, if you were to look at these various names listed here, you would actually find that it's kind of a, a four corners approach that David has to his strategy against these enemies. If you look at verse 1, it's the Philistines. They're the ones who are over uh, to the west. And then verse 2, it's the Moabites. Those are those uh, the, uh, the threat that is to the east. And then Zoab in verses 3 to 5, they're the ones that are at the north. And then as we, we closed out in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 8, it's the Edomites, and they're at the south. Now what David does, and how he approaches this may sound uh, brutal, but I, I will say it pales in comparison uh, to some of what these other ancient Near Eastern uh, nations uh, were known to do. And in some cases were even known to do to their own people. Uh, the Moabites are just one example of that. They were known uh, to uh, uh, to practice all forms of uh, prostitution and uh, child sacrificing. Uh, David here is not uh, Charging in like an ancient Near Eastern leader to say, "I want to scoop up this land for my for oil." Well, that way wouldn't look for oil uh, for for natural resources, or you know, I want to just you know gain more territory so I can just make my name great for my own name's sake. Uh, that is not the case, and it, it's not it, it's not an exercise uh, as we would think of it in some type of uh, world leader. We had a chance uh, last month to befriend some Ukrainians, the refugees. They've only lived here for a couple of months. And they came down and had dinner with us one night. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was fascinating to hear about their perspective on what is you know a, a pressing uh, conflict in the world, a war that is going on in their own country, which they had to flee from. They lived only 20 miles from the border. Their city was 20 miles from the Russian border. Many of the people in their town are Russian. And I said, well, what are the relations like? And they're like, it's great. We get along. What's, you know The point of this war is an evil government and an evil leader uh, as the wife was, was articulating, we know that this is about a man's ego trying to make a name for himself and taking over these lands, even if that name is an in infamy, uh, you know, a sour thing. It's to put his, his mark on history. David is not doing this. This is, this is, not, uh, this is not at all reflective of that type of, of pride or spirit. David here is working, if you will, as a vice regent. He is executing justice as God's representative. We don't have that today, right? We don't have a theocracy. We don't have God's uh, anointed uh, king as uh, as a man. We have a God-man who is, of course, Jesus. This is God's land. This is the land that God had promised to his people. These are not just enemies of David. They're not just enemies of the people of God. These are enemies of God. These are countries that uh, oppose God and uh, His will. They are not bringing glory to God. And what's happening here is not David just arbitrarily doing things. He is setting out to finish what God wanted to be done. And He is administering justice. In, chapters, uh, in chapter 8, verse 9, we see that Toy, uh, this king of, of Hamath, uh, he sees that there is a power with David. There's a, there's a serious threat. He's a little more strategic. So he sends his son and says, check on David's health and bring him some of these, you know, some of this tribute, some of these, uh, these, uh, these treasures. He knows that David is going to take out his enemies. You know, it's better to be uh, aligned with that. And he also sees it as in the old saying, you know, my enemy's enemy is my, my friend. So there's some selfish things here. But they're pursuing in the name of divine justice and to fulfill the promise that God had said for their peace and for their land. So how are they winning, really? The next question here, it's not David's might. It's God's power working through David and his mighty men. They're victorious in all of these battles because of the covenant fulfillment, the promise unfolding here. The answer is summarized by the narrator in two different verses. So look with me, if you would, chapter 8, verse 6. Well, whether you look at verse 6 or verse uh, 14, the phrase is the same in both. It says, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. (laughs) David has the victory because God is with him. This is not, what we witness here is not about David's achievement. It's about God's gift. God gave them, excuse me, over. Again, this is all about God's fame. This is about God's glory and his unfolding faithful promises. This is a report in history, but it's also a preview uh, and a prophecy because there is a greater king who will come. There is a greater uh, great grandson to the promised line of David, King Jesus. You may have noticed my title of the sermon and you think that's very peculiar. Um, It's taken from the the verbiage to kiss the son in Psalm 2. So I want to invite you, in fact, put your finger here in 2 Samuel, but turn with me over to the psalmist, Psalm 2. For some of you, this might be familiar. This is what we refer to as a messianic psalm. It is looking forward to a Messiah. Part of that is fulfilled in the anointing of a king, David, namely, and his line. But it's ultimate fulfillment when you hear this, we read of this, and we are... We are pressed. We are invited. We have the hope that this is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. I'll just read a portion of it because I think it makes a great deal of sense to where we are in the narrative. Why, Psalm 2, verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take, counsels, take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He goes on to write at verse 10, look a little further down. Now, therefore, O kings, the warning is set. O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Him being the Lord's anointed. Right? This is going to have its fulfillment fulfillment it's a, it's an invitation to heed the warning to take refuge in the king and not to oppose him and that really is the only uh, two options that exist i know we like to think of you know putting off our options and you know let's just you know give it time and i don't want to be too committal but the fact of the matter is you have just two options here you can either kiss the sun or scorn the sun there, there is no in between so, I mean, I ask you this morning, what about you? I mean, in your posture towards the king and the kingdom, we were told back in 1 Samuel at the very beginning, and my wife is, is very good about reminding us of this verse. It says there in 1 Samuel 2:30, those who honor me, the Lord says, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those are the promises of God. There's a, there's a warning there too. It says, but those who despise me will be disdained. We know that Jesus Christ has authority. He doesn't gain authority because of a group of people uh, you know, gathered this past week and cast their votes. This is not by popular you know, vote, by, you know, by the ballots that people issued forth. No, no. He has authority in and of Himself. And if we're humble, if we're honest, we don't love it. We, we, we resist it. We're, we're, we're slow. We're reluctant. Because if God is God, then I'm not. If, if God calls the shots and has authority, that means that I don't have autonomy. The patterns of the nations, Psalm 2 is, is, is laying out for us, And the heart of rulers and even our own hearts, again, if we're honest, oppose the rule and the reign of Jesus. Unless God softens our heart, we remain in that place by nature. So to to whatever extent we know and love and serve Jesus, thanks be to God that he revealed himself, softened our hearts and we find ourselves here. Dale Ralph Davis, sorry, it's a typical Sunday and we're in Old Testament. My favorite commentator, he says this, puts it so well. Conflict, I know maybe you felt uncomfortable that David tends to deal this way, but it's God's will. Conflict precedes conquest. Both in the Old and the New Testament, it testifies that on the whole, humanity and nations do not long to receive, but to resist Christ's reign and that he will establish his rule at last, not by popular demand, but with armed might. Kiss the sun or scorn the sun. Our hearts are not going to be, friends, they're not going to be indifferent and neutral. The nations rage against David, and as they were warned, this is, a fo- this is a foreshadowing of Jesus' reign and rule. This is not merely a political opposition we're talking about. I want you to think about that. The fulfillment of Psalm 2, which is illustrated here, the fulfillment of that is an opposition to the Lord's anointed king and son commercially, intellectually. Sexually, not just politically, Jesus is our loving maker. And we don't even want him to decide how we spend our day. We don't even want, we don't even want Jesus to tell us the facts of biology. Biology. painfully obvious the way the world works, and yet we oppose him. The warning of Psalm 2 is illustrated by David's conquest, but the deepest reality is Jesus. And if you think again that this is Old Testament, it's, it's Jesus in the New Testament as well. It's Second Thessalonians 1 where Paul writes, You think about this. You want to be aligned with the king. Not, not, not just in bringing you know, some gifts. That would be important to serve him and his purposes. But to really surrender the whole of our lives. And the joy that comes in being united to a perfect prophet, priest, and king. I love our, our catechism when it says, "Well, How does Christ execute the office of a king? And the confession says this, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering and I love this phrase all of his and our enemies You say I don't have any enemies You're deceived I love you but you are deceived You and I have enemies We have one who is a liar. It is his native tongue. He has spoken it from the beginning. And you don't need to be persuaded lest you pick up the news and figure out that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Yes, there is evil. Yes, there is an enemy. And there is a final enemy. We know it. We have an enemy that dwells from within. We can't even do what we said we were going to do yesterday morning at 8 a.m. Have mercy, Lord. Our greatest enemy is still Very much lurking. And the greatest and final enemy is death. And don't you want a king who can deal with this? Do we have a king who can deal with this? Well, yes, we do. He has conquered death, hell, and the grave. This is good news. When we're yielded to the one and true eternal king. 1 Corinthians 15 says of Christ and his resurrection. Then the end comes, Paul writes when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death thanks be to God that is good news so it leads to this last question who are they trusting and are we going to join them Who are they trusting now? Before we talk about the people of God, Israel, and who they're trusting, let's look at the Ammonites in chapter ten and the Syrians. What are they trusting in? Well, they're trusting in their own intuition. They're trusting in their own feelings. And this foolish king says, "Don't trust." His advisors, his cabinet says, "Don't trust David and his men. These messengers, they're here as spies, but they weren't. David was ready to show kindness. David was ready to to offer gifts." And they can't see it. They don't want to see it. They think that they're out to, uh, to take him out. So what do they do? Well, David, first of all, in, in, in verse 2, he cares about... Why does he do... Why does he show kindness? Because he cares about Hesed. said is the Hebrew word for loving kindness. The faithfulness that he had. He says, I was faithful to his father and his father's father... Uh, and, and they were they were kind to us. So I'm, I'm going to show kindness. But then what happens? No, it all backfires. In <clears throat> verses uh, 3 to 5, let's look at chapter 10 together. But the princes of the Ammonites said to uh, Hanan, their lord, Do not think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father. Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out? So Hanan, verse 4, took David's servants, shaved off their beard each of them, and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. I wish I could have been there. Don't you? Some tells me they didn't cut off the beard right here, right? Some tells me that they cut off the beard about right here. And they sent away looking like idiots to a men who the, part of their dignity was their beard, right? You imagine this. And then it says they just cut off their, their pants at their, at their waist. Think hospital gown, okay? This thing's wide open in the back. This is humiliating. And they're sent off, these messengers. And what does King David do? Does King David say, you royal idiots, how could you let them treat you this way? Did he scorn them? Did he say, drag your obvious bare naked behinds into the city so we can all shame you? No, he doesn't. He says, just stay. Stay in Jericho. Stay in Jericho and let your beards grow out. We can get you some new clothes overnight. It's going to be okay. But let your beard grow. And you know what I took away from that this week? I love it when I see David shadowing and pointing to Jesus. Because David is a man in good godly leadership. He covers the shame of his men. And do we have a king who knows our guilt and our shame And he covers it. He covers it. King Jesus, the king of grace and the king of mercy for all. No, not for all, but for those who take refuge in him. Come to me. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy laden and you will find rest. It's precisely why do we trust in a God like this? Because of his worthiness, because of his kindness, because it's the truth. Whether I like it, whether it accords with my plans for the afternoon, it doesn't matter. It's true. I have no other choice but to trust the King. But it's also because of God's sovereignty, because of God's complete control, not only His kindness, but His control over all things, His authority. This is when we come back and we review the promises of God with that in our outlook, right? That in our perspective. Now, We see here in the text that Joab, as you kind of make your way down into verse 9, we know a little bit about Joab. Not exactly an altogether upstanding character. He was the guy in the name of Vengeance went and and had a private conversation with a man and and Vengeance struck him in in the stomach and, and, uh, and murdered him with a dagger. But he is now the commander, still is the commander, I should say, was and is David's commander of the army. And we already know that he's flawed. But... Can we learn something of theology from a murderer? Well, God may have changed his heart. This may be a different season of his life. But yes, the answer is yes. Can we learn from any source? Yes. As long even children? Yes. When they are speaking the truth. So, so for, for now, as Joab speaks truth, let him who have ears hear. Because Joab, look at verse 9 is likely stressed out because he can see that they are flanked on both sides. It's a dire situation. There's a great number of opposition. And yet, he resolves to not make this merely a military exercise. He has a deep trust, it's obvious here, in the Almighty. Because look with me, if you would, at verse 12, and let's learn something of his theology. Verse 12, he says, Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him let the Lord do what seems good to him so in other words god whether we win or lose and i don't know what that holds joab is saying we know that we can trust you and we can press forward in acts of obedience and faith because we know that you are good. We didn't, you know. I said this several weeks ago with C.S. Lewis and the Lion, "The Witch in the Wardrobe," and Lucy says, to, uh, you know, to, 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 that when she asks, "Is Aslan, who represents the authority and power of King Jesus as the Great Lion, is he safe?" And the answer, of course, is no. He is not safe. But he is good. He is good. How do we respond, though, at times? We say, God, I, I wanted to trust in your sovereignty, um, but what I really need is the details, right? Because I just I, 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 I need you to outline the plan. Tell me, you, you promised me things, but I need to see and hear how you're going to execute those, right? Tell me if it agrees with my map. Tell me if it agrees with my timeline, right? Let's, 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 let's get all these things lined up, God, and then I can praise you for being good and I will trust you. For some of you, it might be a medical prognosis. For some of you this morning, it's, it's a tenuous relationship. It's, it's the unknown. It's the uncertainty of your health or your job or relationships. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your aging parents. Maybe it's something at work. God, I, I need more knowledge of what's going to happen. I need more assurance. So just give me all the details so we can, we can have that, you know, ironed out. Remember how I talked about it? A number of weeks ago, we go to God and we said, oh, God, I've got your will lined out. I just, you know, I, I, I detailed it. It's, it's, it's a sheet that I just, I've mapped out the plan and... You know we 're going to do this first, and then we 're going to execute that and then and really all I think I need is for you to just sign off here on the bottom and God says that 's interesting. Um, I actually had one for you i i 'm glad you brought this up. I, I think we do need to have a little bit of a heart to heart on this one i 'm asking you to trust me, and i 've actually got something mapped out and i 'd also like to get your signature on it, and he slides it across the table in the negotiation, which is not a negotiation, and he says. Sign this, please. And he said, oh, I was glad to do that, God, but I can see that there's nothing on this sheet. Small problem. Joab says, let the Lord do as seems good to him. John Calvin says it better than I. God does not give particular promises about this or that to his children. They are particular. They are precious, they are permanent, they are good, but sometimes he doesn't reveal to us the plan to manifest his glory and his goodness in our life. So this is what Calvin says, we certainly have this point which we should firmly persuade us that God will never abandon us and that in the end he will show us that our hope in him was not in vain so that our faith will not be frustrated when it rests upon His mercy and His truth. Nevertheless, we must remain in suspense about many things. For instance, when we ask God for our daily bread, it's not that we are assured that He will send us a good harvest or a great vintage. We should leave that in His hands and patiently await what pleases Him. When we have any illness, we must rest assured that He has not forgotten us, that He... That we have such access to him, that in the end he will feel that he has looked upon us in pity. The promise of God should be fully sufficient in regard to that. However, when we look like when we when however when we would like to have the word that today or tomorrow he will restore our health, we do not know. We even are in doubt about living or dying. Why, Why do children say Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Sorry, I know some of you are thinking about Metallica. Enter Sandman right now. That's a crazy song that I love. Anyway, um, last week it was the Bruins. Thank you. This week it's Metallica. I know you didn't see that coming. Anyway, all this to say, think about it. Isn't sleep a foreshadowing of death? Troy, you went from jaded to morbid. Okay. No, I'm serious. What assurance do we have when we fall asleep at night that we will awake? We trust them. We have no other choice. What's the alternative? Childlike faith, I'll tell you what it is. Because I believe this wholeheartedly. Childlike faith, kneeling beside a bed is a lot better than an adult lying in the bed, scrolling the internet, looking at WebMD. Why does God warn us? No, no, why does He invite us to say, to walk in, to believe? Later in Matthew 6, we started to read part of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not worry about Tomorrow. For tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Why is God calling us to live in the present today? Because He's in control and He is good. And we can say with Joab be of good courage and may the Lord do what seems good to Him. Who rules the world? This is this is not an opportunity to interject your conspiracy theory. Who rules the world? This is not a tr- this is not trick question. This isn't a quiz. This is this is real, okay? Who rules the world? It, is it a financial institution? Some would say it's China. Some would say it. Well, at one point they would say it was you know the USSR. Is it the, is it the United States? Is it some tyrannical leader who's sitting right now with access to nuclear weapons? King Jesus rules the world. Psalm 2 promised, it prophesies that these chapters are merely an illustration of the foreshadowing of the great reality that is secured, that is, to come in Christ Jesus. Kiss the King. Kiss the Son. Honor the Son. Serve the King in every area of your life. Today, and today, tomorrow will be a new day and there will be new morning mercies because he's also the king of grace. Father, please glorify yourself in strengthening us. We do believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we thank you for the, the temporary peace and the victory you gave to your people, Israel through King David. And we pray that you would take us, the new Israel, and do what you promised in providing final rest and peace someday when Jesus returns. Can't be soon enough. Would you forgive us though, Lord, for not taking you at your word. Forgive us for doubting your goodness and your kindness. Forgive us for being restless and anxious about tomorrow. Forgive us sometimes when we have contempt and we, we chafe, we resist, we burn against your secret will, your providence. Thank you, God, for being so steadfast and unshakable in your covenant and your love and your faithfulness. Thank you for fulfilling all the promises in the person and work of Jesus. Even as we, we we reflected last week, Lord, please teach us your promises so that we could pray with boldness and stand upon them in whatever is on the horizon and in whatever threats, in whatever dangers and disappointments. Lord, you know there's people in our midst that are struggling. There's a great deal of uncertainty. They're struggling with work. They're struggling with their marriage, their, their health. They're struggling with contentment. They're weary in their calling. There's loads of uncertainty, Lord, and I pray. That's true for all of us, but it's, it's looming large for others. I pray that you would meet people in that with your mercy. There are places in the world. There are places in our community. There's places in our relationships that need peace and rest, and you can build it. Please come back. Make all things right and all things new. In Jesus' sufficient name we pray. Even now as together we pray the prayer he taught his disciples.